in the long nights long ago, when the men had sit around my father's fire, no night had passed that the conversation wouldn't turn to some great personage was in the world at one time. In our house, we'd often talk about Aristotle, although the old people had a more homely name for him. They used to call him Harrystetl. Seems he was a wonderful teacher, and the way he used to like to teach was walking along the road and through the fields so the pupils they could be making hay or thinning turnips while they were learning their lessons. For at that time, great store was set by the fact that the young people should know the name and the nature of everything that grew and everything that ran, of everything that flew and everything that swam. But despite his great knowledge... The old people used to say that there were three things that Harry Stettel did not understand. And these three things were the ebb and flow of the tide, the work of the honeybee, and the fleetness of a woman's mind exceeds the speed of light. There were these two Kerry women. They were going to town one day. Now, this was way back in 1922 in the Second Trouble, and all the bridges were blown down. So, after a heavy night's rain, you'd wet more than your toes fording the river going to town. The woman going to town, she was a little bit in the small side, and she said to the woman who was coming from town, who was fairly tall, she said to her, Were you in town? What time is it? What price are eggs? Is the flood high? And as quick as lightning, the woman coming from town said, I was three o'clock, one and fourpence up to my bottom. The oldest one-man show on earth is how Eamon Kelly describes the art of the Shanaki, that storyteller of old who held his audience spellbound as he stared into eternity while sitting in the intimacy of the firelight and the candlelight in the homes of rural Ireland. The traditional Shanaki is now no more than part of our folklore, but the professional storyteller lives on, and there is no greater exponent of that art in Ireland today than Eamon Kelly himself. Eamon, who first saw the light of day in the parish of Rathmore in County Kerry over threescore years ago, and later romped the rows of Glenflesk within a stone's throw of the lakes of Killarney. My schooling, such as it was, interrupted at an early age, which was just as well, because I think that, uh, you know, education belts the individuality out of a fellow. And um, when I was, uh, I, was stopped, I left school possibly at uh, 13 and a half or 14 and I went working with my father who was a carpenter. And I loved that work because I met um, the masons and the carpenters and uh, they're really very intelligent men and um, uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful conversation, great storyline, wonderful characters. Many of them were ex-soldiers and... Uh, uh, many of them had been to England and in various places. You know, they were they were great conversationalists and wonderful company. And uh, I um, was about a year and a half or two years maybe uh, left school when I realised that I'd made a mistake. You know, and my father and mother didn't encourage me to to, to keep going, but uh, I took out a correspondence course for a while, Bennett College, Sheffield, 
which I only managed about two weeks when I got very fed up with it. And what kind of course was that, Amy? It was a course about building construction. I was to improve. I wanted to be, you know, good at the thing I was at. So then somebody advised me to go to the tech, and I used to go to the tech at night. And in the technical school in Killarney at that time, possibly the man that's there now is just as good, but then there was a very famous character called Mihal O'Reather. There were scholarships then for, for young men to be trained as manual instructors, as in woodwork. And um, uh, he asked me if I would like to have a shot at it. Now, my other level of education was fairly neglected, so I had to go back to the old schoolmaster and learn more Irish. And Michal himself used to take me to his own house and taught me a little English and uh, maths, graphic statics and things of that kind, and um, let me go to scholarship. So I failed it the first time, but I got it the next time, which brought me out of, out of Kerry to Dublin. Eamon was in Dublin from 1938 to 1940 and qualified as a manual instructor after studying in the College of Art where the woodwork course was held at that time. He also learned drawing and painting from Morris McGonagall. Soon he was back in his native Kerry as a fully-fledged vocational teacher. I used to teach uh, woodwork, building construction and drawing. And at first I taught around County Kerry this what they used to call an itinerant teacher which made many of the people laugh, you see. The Montour Tashtel. Montour Tashtel. But itinerant here had also the, the other connotation. And um, then after some time at, uh, at that, I went to Waterville. There was a school there then. And I spent a couple of years there. I was there for the earlier years of the war. And from there, you know, I, I came to Listowel. And um, Brian McMahon had a bookshop there then. And uh, I went in there for, for a book, uh, <clears throat> and um, when I put my name down, he said, uh, what is it, I heard your name on the wireless the other night. That was the first time I was ever on the wireless. Austin Clark had a program uh, about new poetry and new, new, new competition. So I had written something about, um, about uh, teaching woodwork in the, in the village halls where I used to teach. And uh, the entry was read out. <clears throat> I was highly commended. You know, I didn't get a prize, but I was highly commended. But he remembered it. And he, he said, um, oh, he said, I heard that the other night. I didn't hear it because I was walking. So um, from that simple thing, a friendship developed. Um, and he was in charge of the drama group there. Then I became interested in, in the drama. And I was started there as an actor. And I, was, uh, I used to produce and, um, uh, for some time. We went around then to the drama festivals during the war, your drama festivals in Limerick and Killarney and various places like that. And won, uh, we won many things with the uh, play by the Western World. It was in that I met my wife. She was playing Peggy and Mike, and I was playing Twisty Man. You know, power rings you have. Anyhow, I'm asking, were you wedded now? And um, we, we were wedded uh, before that play was finished. Well, did you do Shakespeare in this story? Oh, we didn't do it in the stall, but uh, uh, funnily enough, I've, I've been in a few Shakespearean plays. I, was, I did the porter in what the actors call the Scottish play, and the English critics thought it was marvellous. The Irish ones didn't think much of it. But um, Shakespeare is, comes very natural to people in, in, in the country. I remember Bunny Dalton in the stall used to do an impression of a, a young lad from the college. The, the other children remembered him. Um, <laughs> the impression he made when he was reading it, or when he had it off by heart, and they used to stop him in the street. Uh, the older people stopped him in the street just to hear him. And uh, it was Julius Caesar they were doing at the time. 
And he said, Wherefore rejoice, fat conquest brings thee home, for tributaries follow him to Rome, to graze in captive bonds his chariot wheels. Ye blocks, ye stones, oh, ye worse than senseless things, ye hard hearts, ye cruel men of Rome, knew ye not Pompey. Many is the time and oft have he climbed up the walls and battlements, yea, the chimney taps, and there have sat the live long day in patient expectation to see great Pompey pass the streets of Rome. And when his chariot would appear, did he not call out a universal cry, the Tiber trembling her banks to hear the replication of your sounds? And do you know, call out a holiday, and do we know, through flowers in his way, that comes and triumph for Pompey's blood, be gone, run to your houses, fall down upon your knees, and pray to the gods to intermit the plague that needs most lighten this ingratitude. Sometimes they used to say, and pray to the gods, pray to the sacred heart of the divine God to keep the invader away from your shores which is a little addition to Shakespeare, and which scanned, you know, as well. <laughs> For 12 years, Eamon Kelly instructed the youth of Kerry in all the arts of woodwork and delighted audiences with his great performances as Christy Mann in The Playboy of the Western World, Circus Jack in The Bugle and the Blood, and Morgan Quill in The Magic Glasses. But the list old drama group was soon to lose its man of many parts because in 1952... Eamon joined the Radio Erin Players, along with his wife, Maura Sullivan. This was the beginning of a professional career of an actor later to become the Abbey Theatre's greatest solo performer. I spent 12 years, 12 years of my life, in the attic in the GPO in Henry Street. And um, we had great times there. And um, <clears throat> I remember very well we had more and I had a flat over in um, near Rialto, and they didn't know that we were connected with the acting business. And the first play that we did was Mickle Massive, where uh, we were playing the young lovers in it. And um, there were some terrible scenes in the in the play of uh, abuse, and. Um, and she had to say, "I hate you! I hate you! I could kill you!" You see. Well, the poor people downstairs who had rented us the rooms upstairs, they were all out in the hall, and the husband saying to his wife, I told you he shouldn't have let them in. I told you. He'll kill her. Oh, they'll be found dead. Will we call for the police? <laughs> so we had to tell them then, of course. That we, when we told them to do the play, well, it was all we were left on. But um, uh, while I was there, Porig, um, um I don't know, in, in some way became interested in storytelling and some stories that I had heard down the country when I was down on holidays, I, I told them at um, some function that was on and Mihalo Hay, who was there, said, uh, would you have any more, a few more like that? So I said, M maybe I could come by a few more. So I got a spot in Dinjo's Take the Floor. I was the only radio, with the only radio station the world had dancing in. And it was very popular. Um, popular, yes. I can be sure of that. And did, did you know how they did the dancing? No, I didn't. Well, uh, have you ever seen the thing that goes over a roll-top desk, you know, a canvas with, with lats stuck onto it? Yeah. A thin lats. That was put on the floor, and that gave the wonderful sort of, of uh, uh, tap uh, noise when the dancers danced, and Rory O'Connor and his dancers. But um, it was an instant, uh, it was, uh, from a reaction point of view, it was an instant success. Surely this was in the next morning. Um and uh, from all over the country, so that uh, I went on in, I was used uh, uh, quite a lot in, in, in Dinjo's programme while it was on. And um, then Mihalo Holloway decided that uh, 
Oh, yes, we give him a programme of his own. So we did a thing called the Rambling House. That is what the, pl the places were called in my part of the country where men assembled at night. The same as you have visiting houses in the West and Cayley houses in the North. And um, <coughs> th this programme was in the lines of the Rambling House. And Dunnock O'Kaelaher, Shin Dunnock O'Kaelaher, Shkriv Bully Wharton, who lived up the road here, he did the script with me for it. And Benach um, Dalish. Uh, Sean O'Shea was in it, and Theresa Cliff from the north, they were the singers. Eamon Keane was in it, he was the schoolmaster, he used to come in and do the recitations. And um, I used to tell the stories, and we had the, the real sort of scene of coming in at night and talking about the affairs of the day. And the thing went along, and it was had in Wales, I'd even letters from Wales about it, and uh, it's a great, a great impression. Any man that ever went the road to Killarney could not miss Peg the Damsel's new house. It was at the other side of the level crossing. Well, you couldn't miss that either for any time I ever went that way. One gate was open and the other gate was shut. They were always half expecting a train. Peg's house was done up to the veins of nicety. Darmer windows out in the roof. Variegated ridge tiles, walls, pebble dashed, what you could see them, for they were nearly covered with ivy. And in the front garden, Peg had ridges of flowers, surrounded by a hedge, oh, beautifully clipped. The barber couldn't do it nicer. And one knob of the hedge was allowed to grow up, and it was strained to give the effect of a woman sitting down playing a concertina. Peg herself, of course, for she was a dinger on the box. If you heard her playing the verse of Vienna, you'd never again want to turn on the wireless. How's this? She had it. Um, father Welch's, Father Welch's, Father Welch's top coat. Ni wore it, ni tore it, ni spoiled his top coat. Diddly ding dee dee oh, diddly ding dee dee dee, diddly ding dee dee doh, diddly ding dee dee dee. She was brilliant. Now, of all the poses in Peg's garden, the roses took the pride of place. She had roses there of every hue. She had June roses, tea roses, ramblers and climbers. And at the back of Peg's house, there was a farmer living, and he had a goat running with the cows. Oh, very destructive animal. And the goat came the way, and he broke into the garden, and he sampled the roses, and he liked them, and he made short work of them. Peg complained the goat to the farmer. What do you want him for, she said, with nine cows, sure you can be short of milk. Well, says the farmer, it isn't that at all. Do you see, goats are said to be lucky. And another thing is they'll devour the injurious herb, and the cows will go there full time. If he follow me. You needn't be a small farmer to know that. You'll be doing full time, says Peg, if that goat don't conduct himself, for I'll have you up before the man in the white wig. Oh, play tough now, says the farmer, a man afraid of his life of litigation, for it can lighten the pocket. Play tough now, he said. I have a donkey chain there, and I'll shorten it down to make a feathers for the goat, which he did. 
But the goat, do you see, when he got the timing of the fetters the same as the two lads in the three-legged race, he was able to move as quick-witted as without it. Now, that'd be the same year that Peg married the returned Yank. Or was it? It is so long ago now. Everything is uh, gone away back in my pole. Twas a man that went in a fright for fancy shirts. And they do. One day is all the Yankee keep the shirt on him. Look at that for a caper. And the woman, her fingers worn to the bone washing for him. Well, this morning, Peg the damsel, she washed out a red shirt and she put it abroad up in the hedge to dry. That was all right, no fault. Until the goat came the way. And handicapped in all as he was, he broke into the garden, attracted by the colour, I suppose, and he made short work of the shirt. Peg the damsel opened the front door just in time to see the white button of the left cuff disappearing down the goat's throttle. There was no good in calling the yank. He was above in Blanket Street. You see, all night work he had in New York, and he used to sleep during the day, and as he had no night work at home, he used to sleep day and night. Peg had to go after the goat herself, and the goat, he hopped up in the ditch of the railway, and he ran down the incline, and when he was crossing over the railway tracks, it wouldn't happen again, and the rainy cats didn't one link of the chain go down over the square-headed bolt that's pinning the rail chair onto the tie, and he was held there, he couldn't move. And what was worse, the train was coming now, he heard it whistling. Oh, wasn't that a nice pucker for a goat to be in? And if he were there, he'd lose your heads, and so would I. But the goat didn't. What did he do? He coughed up the red shirt and flagged down the train. People now uh, don't realise how powerful radio was at that time before television came. Everybody had a radio set. And strange enough, radio became only popular in the 1950s. During the war, you had sets in most, in most houses, but somehow... Radio airing wasn't geared at all to the country audiences. It was things like uh, Take the Floor and Kieran Mark Mahoney's programme, Seamus Ennis first. Uh, uh, people in Dublin didn't think that there was anybody interested in that sort of thing. Mm. And then um, uh, Michal O'Hare and, and uh, Brian McMahon, Sigerson Clifford, Brendan Beer and various others had the, the Ballad Maker Saturday Night, which was uh, a tremendous success throughout the country. And that was, that was the forerunner to all the sort of ballad groups, that wherever they are now, they're all popped off that. And um, then the, the st I, I, I came then with the storytelling. It was then people like uh, radio dealers throughout the country will tell you, it was then the farmers that's taking the money out of, the, out of their savings and going in and buying sets. Also, another thing that, put the, that made, it, made it wireless, uh, uh, which I, I keep calling it wireless, um, popular was the ESB was now going into everywhere so they didn't have the trouble that they had in the old days of the wet battery and the dry battery bringing it home in the message bag and the handlebars of the bicycle and having the acid spill out into the sugar and ruin it um, you, you didn't have that trouble anymore they would just plug it in so that um, radio was, was tremendously popular then and I had invitations out uh, all over the I'd be away every Sunday night from Belmullet down to Carseveen and uh, up to Cavan and down to Waterford. Uh, Mondays, I'd be like a wet rag. Telling know. stories all the time? Well, I'd go out with a concert group. 
that the Martin Dempsey, Sean O'Shikon, uh, um, with a couple of lady singers, uh, would have uh, maybe one other comedian, and then I'd, 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 I'd have two spots telling stories in it as well. I remember Donna McCroom, uh, we had two ladies, singers, with the, with the group that night. One of them had an, an off-the-shoulder <coughs> um, figario on her, and the other one had shoulder straps, you see. And uh, this is Sean O'Shikon's story, um, that um, at the end he'd only, he'd only time for one more song. So he said to, <laughs> to the audience that um, you've, heard bo- you've heard both our lady singers, which one will we send out to you now? And a shout from the back said, send out the one with the galluses. <laughs> You've had galluses, of course. Yes. There's a word for braces. Braces, yeah. Yes. Going into the monsters long ago, the soldier was asked when he was given his uniform, have you everything now? He said, yes, everything, except our racking galluses. Eamon Kelly spent 12 years with the Radio Aaron Players and then started a freelance acting career, mainly with the Gate Theatre. But three years later, that was in 1967, he became a member of the Abbey Theatre Company. I remember at um, the Edinburgh Festival, we were there with a play by the Western World, in which I played Old Man, and, um, and the house was full, and uh, waiting for the curtain to go up. And then it was it was the custom to play the national anthem before performances in every theatre. You know, it's just gone out of fashion now. But um, the national anthem was put on, but it was the Irish national anthem. You see. And the audiences weren't quite sure what it was. So about half the audience got to their seat, you see. And when they were uh, on their seat, they noticed that the other, half, the other half was sitting down. So they said, we must have made a mistake. And by this time, the half sitting down had decided that they had made a mistake, you see. So they got up. So you had an up and down jack-in-the-box thing for three or four minutes. And <laughs> then there were occasional outbursts of laughter here and there, controlled, you see, because they knew now, but possibly guess now, that they, were, that they shouldn't show disrespect to the Irish National Anthem. And then they sat down, and there was a howl of laughter from all over the theatre. They were just settling themselves, opening the chocolate boxes and everything, when on goes God Save the Queen, <laughs> which was greeted with a howl. Because as they got up, it was really funny. The curtain came across, and we had a wonderful audience. We really warmed up at the very first um, lines in the play, six yards of cloth or whatever it is, to be brought home in Michael James's cart, whatever it is, and Peggy and Mike's first word. As marvellous audience that was. Then we went to... Um, we went another time to... Uh, with the, uh, the Well of the Saints, and... Uh, I was playing Martin Dahl, which is the principal part in that play, and there was a play of George Fitzmaurice's with it, The Dandy Dolls, and Eamon Keane was playing the lead in that. So, uh, in the old Vic, we had... Uh, I had uh, Olivier's dressing room, the one next to it. I think his was locked because there were some valuables in there, and uh, Keane was across the, the way. And a strange thing happened there one night. We were talking on the stage about Thunder and Lightning, this marvellous play, how Singh has uh, the blind people talking about sounds all the time. And they talk about the little buds twittering in the bushes and the sound of the stream and the dog barking and the sheep bleating in the hills. And we're talking about Thunder and Lightning. And there was, a, there was a, a storm in London that night and the lights failed on the stage for a second. And the flash of lightning came right through down from the from the from the stack and lit up the stage 
you know, as we were talking about it. It was a really strange thing. The place became flooded that night, and we had to get to the dressing room, we had to take our shoes off. That was a, <coughs> was a very successful uh, little outing uh, at that time to the, to the old Vic with that play. Did an extraordinary number of parts in, in the Abbey uh, during th that number of years and toured with them. Yeah. In 1972, Eamon Kelly gave his first presentation of story theatre in Irish called Scale Scaly at the Peacock Theatre. This was followed by a whole series of one-man shows, Scheel Scheele Elle, Elle, In My Father's Time, The Rub of the Relic and Bless Me Father. He also toured extensively around Ireland with the Taylor and Anstey. Anstey, by the way, was played by his wife, Maura. His success as a storyteller was unqualified. Michal O'Hay of the Abbey Theatre, in a programme note for one of those shows, says of him, Soon after we first met... He showed me a pair of Sugon chairs, which he had made when he was a woodworker, long before home crafts became the fashion. Herein lies a clue to his artistry. He is one of that rare and disappearing breed of men who could rib a ship or turn the secret joinery of song and story. Then somebody suggested to me that I should do a show of my own, a storytelling show. And... Uh, <coughs> I, I was nervous about it, you know. Before that, I had done just a spot in a show or uh, on radio. I had done, you know, ten minutes or something of that kind. And I was very nervous about it. And the Moss McCann insisted that I, that, I, that I do it and that it would be very good. Well, if there had been a vacancy for a barman in Kathmandu that evening, you know, uh, in the Herald of the Evening Press, I would have taken it. But um, I got it together and uh, Michael Colgan... Uh, directed it uh, and uh, put it together with me. <clears throat> and it went on and it was, um, it was a howling success. I, I was really the most amazed man in Europe when, when people you know, came in droves to see it. So now it's like, the, it's like the lady who used, the fellow who used to convey the lady home from the trashing every year, you know, and then didn't see her again until the next year. I mean, the fourth time... The fourth time this happened, he said to his friends in the pub, it looked like as if it was going to become an annual event. Well, it has become an annual event with me, and very soon I'll be wishing again, you know, if there's any opening in Kathmandu or any place, to get away because the material is running out. Well, where do you get the material for all That's the stories? That's a good question now. Um, uh, at first, I had one or two stories at first. I had the first story I ever had was some bat shea in a place called the Black Shop, near Sneem in County Kerry. He was an extraordinary man he was. I don't know if any of his people are living down there yet. But he, he, he was, the, he was the, the, uh, the great liar, you know, the, 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 wonderful, the wonderful stories, which all happened to himself. You know, it happened to himself, no matter what it was, it happened to himself. Like, for instance... Uh, in the early part of the war, an aeroplane flew low over that part of the country, and they were talking about it that evening, and somebody said that they thought it was a German plane. There used to be a great debate as to whether it was a German or an English plane. And it was in the autumn time, I think, and Bat said, no, he said, it was an English plane. I said, how do you know? He said, they flew low over our field, he said, and one of them put his head out as he was crossing over. He said, damn fine spuds, Bat shares there this year. <laughs> Then, when I, when I started telling the stories in the radio, I got an amazing amount of, of stories in by post. People wrote to me from all parts of the country and sent in stories. 
Some of them were pulling my leg, I know that very well. And they had made, made, they had made up these stories about neighbours of their own, you know, and thinly disguised names, a situation that would be very well understood locally. But I, I think I was able to pick those out. And um, each time then, once you get the name of being a storyteller, <clears throat> each time you go back to any part of Ireland, a fellow pulls you aside and tells you a story. And he is, as often as not, telling you the most original story ever, which you, you yourself told on the radio 15 years ago, you know, which has, has come to him through various other sort of uh, ways, and uh, he's telling it to you now as being a, a first-time-out a first story. Um, in Gugon in West Cork, where I used to go, that's the tailor's place. The tailor was there. I never knew him. I never knew the, ta the tailor. Uh, but in, in the house there at night in Cronin's, in Cronin's Hotel, many of the people from around the place used to collect in and we used to have storytelling sessions and um, in Cooley I knew a lot of the Cooley people I got lots of stories from around there Dunica Kaleher uh, and his brother Danny Kaleher um, I, I've, I've had a tremendous amount of, of lore and from them because the, the, their father Donald Bonner Kaleher who wrote uh, he wrote the book Mushkil Fein or Shkiel Mavaha and um, that part of the country is, is the most intelligent part of the country you can ever go to, is Kool-Aid. They're ambidextrous, you know, they have the two languages, they go from one to the other. Their Irish is so good, and their English is so good. And um, there's, there are no inhibitions whatsoever about language. It's, it's, it's one of the... I remember bringing a man up there, a man who told me lots of stories from Glenn Flesk, uh, John Lynch, God be good to him. And we went into, into this Irish-speaking house, and uh, they were talking to me in Irish and talking in English to John because he didn't, uh, he didn't understand Irish, and they were telling stories in Irish and in English. And it, 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 is, it was a wonderful sort of, uh, uh, you know, the situation where, uh, where somebody in the middle of a sentence just suddenly thinking that he was talking to somebody who didn't know, who didn't know Irish, and changed into English in the middle of the, in the middle of the sentence. There's a thing there's no noise about now, and when we were young, our hearts would be up in our mouths if we heard there was one of them coming. It would be well publicised beforehand, you may say, and it would be a very dull man living in a very out-of-the-way place that wouldn't hear of it. Then, when the time had come, the roads would be black with people going there, men, women and children, although some people would say it was no place at all for children. You think now I'm talking about the circus? I am nothing but about the mission. Once every five years the mission had come here and my neighbours had been talking about it for three years before and two years after. For no word of a lie, it did make an impression and an impression that was needed in certain quarters. Well, the vows that had been made and the pledges that had been taken, line after line of hardened old campaigners facing the altar rails the final Sunday, everyone would be so changed, you'd swear that from that out, judges would have to hang up their wigs and publicans would have to go selling short buttons. Two holy fathers that used to come here, and even though of saintly appearance, well-versed, you may say, in every description of villainy. They'd light the chapel with language, bringing their voices away down very low, and then making a tremendous shout 
that had frightened the living daylights out of everyone. People used to be afraid to go up near the altar, and we'll say now, a shy man sitting there near the altar, if the Holy Father fixed his eye on him, and he in a rage, the poor man had nearly pass out. Even down near the door where we used to be, you'd be shivering in your shoes, for every night they'd go from one evil doing to another, from the sins of life to death, from death to judgment, and from judgment as was only natural to the place below. Oh, glory! The fires of hell it be described down to the very last detail, the smoke and the steam and the gnashing of teeth. Poor old women sitting there in the chapel, no more sin in them than on the child in the cradle, only trying to make ends meet, and the tears rolling down their cheeks at the thought of all those people suffering in the hobs of hell for all eternity. And I'll never forget one night there was this woman, she was from out the bower, a hat on her, and there she was as unconcerned as if she was at a football match. Of course the Holy Father couldn't help but notice her, "'Twas the big man that was on the same night. "'And when she was going out the gate after, "'you see, to the small man said benediction, "'the big man approached her and he said, um, "'How is it,' he said, my good woman, "'that you were so unmoved by all the suffering in hell's flames? "'You're a father,' says she. "'I'm not from this parish at all.' "'And they used to travel from parish to parish after the missioners. "'Some people can take an awful hammering.' One night, the sermon had be given over to drink, another night to company keeping, and so on. And there'd be some sins mentioned, and if the people were given a free hand, they wouldn't know how to go about committing them. But coming into the second week, we'd all be coming closer to grace. And the final night, it'd be glorious. Old lads there with no more note, no, no more than a crow, and they're trying to sing, Never will we sin again. And a great blaze of light when all the candles were lit for the renouncing of the devil. I can tell you if that bucko put in an appearance that night, he'd get a belt of a fish as quick as lightning. Oh, such fervor. Monday morning, we'd all return to normal life. And I'll never forget, one Monday morning, I was over here at the forge putting slippers in the mare. There was a big crowd there, and the only topic of conversation was the mission. And some people held that after all that was said, we were given a very poor inkling as to what heaven was like. Well, they admitted heaven was mentioned earlier on. But at that time, very little hope was held out for the people. But now that they all expected to go to heaven, they were wondering what sort of a place it was. Would they have to work in heaven? And what would the weather be like? And we'll say now, for instance, the man that was married twice here, which one of them would he be walking out with in heaven? He couldn't be walking out with the tomb. Or maybe it was all right in heaven to have two. <laughs> we didn't know. The blacksmith was wondering, would there be a public house there where they could go in and sit down, he said, and talk to the neighbours? Well, there was one fellow there. He was a good footballer in his day until the wind broke on him and he wound up carrying the Ganses. Heaven wouldn't be much of a place in his eyes unless they had an occasional football match. Maybe, Sissy, we'd get up a team and travel out. Another man there used to scrape a bit in the fiddle. He wasn't much good. He'd like heaven to be a place where he'd meet all these musicians and they'd be exchanging tunes. I have a bonnet trimmed with blue. Why don't you wear it, sure I do? Why don't you wear it when you can? Going to the dance with your young man. 
dance. That was it. All the young people said heaven wouldn't be much to write home about if there was no dancing. Now, there was this old lad sitting up on the hob, never opened his mouth during all this conversation, only making curly cues in the ashes with his walking cane. Shah dances he, with a smile. From what we heard about heaven in the chapel during the past two weeks, there won't be enough there from this parish to make up a half set. On stage, on radio, on television, Eamon Kelly, like most actors, is a man of many parts and many images. In his private life, he is master of his own image. I'm rather a serious man, you know, and I do wear a serious face sometimes, even when I'm out in the street. A man came up to me, this is true now, in O'Connor Street, one time, looked at me and said, cheer up, it might never happen. And um, very often, uh, when, if I'm preoccupied, uh, other people on the set, you know, or on the stage say to me, well, you're down now today, Eamon. Actually, I'm possibly not down now that day, but I am a rather serious disposition. And people who, who make their, their living in the comedian or entertainment line usually are very serious at home. I've heard this, and I am quite serious, but not all the time. I, I um, at meal times now, I really set those aside when I'm talking to my wife and to the children uh, that that uh, there should be a, a, should be a happy time and that uh, I should keep the conversation going even though maybe I'm boring the pants off them, I don't know, but I, I try to make it as amusing as possible. And particu particularly if we go out for a meal, it, it can be quite an occasion uh, because um, uh, food and, and a drink or two brings out the best in me. But I am I am a re reflective sort of person and, and, and serious, I would say, although I, I, I like company very much and I like solitude. That's a strange sort of contradiction now in my character. Eamon, do you regret now very much the passing of that kind of rural life that you portray in many of your stories? Several people ask me that, and to be honest with you, I do regret it. But I, you know, I'm practically minded uh, enough to think that life isn't life unless it changes. Um, the, the people can be can be very sentimental about how life was in the country and how life was in the cities, and even about the shape and the size of cities, and don't destroy this building and that. But I believe myself in the world that we live in, on uh, that that life is a constant change. And the, the next generation coming up, we think they're going to be lost without all that lore. They are not, because they're human beings and they're going to make their own world out of it. As a matter of fact, the generation coming after them, you know, will be trying to preserve what they found and what they, and what, and what they, and what they delighted in and saying, how are we going to go on if that isn't preserved? I, I am sorry that it should, should happen, you know, but maybe we always remember it. I remember life in the country like we remember all the fine days in the summer long ago, forgetting all the snows of winter and the frost, and forgetting all the days we were hungry. And we, 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 there is a sort of screen which comes down over the memory, with a very sort of bright, um, glowing sort of thing on it, you know, which makes it <laughs> those past days more, more wonderful than they were. I, I, I regret it in a way, but I think that um, I think that it's, it must change. Well, no matter what change happens, no matter what progress happens, you'll still continue telling stories. Oh, if people ask it, uh, I, I, I will. Over in Cardigan Aymed, I remember there used to be heap of skulls in the corner, and bloody frightening they were too for a small child to be looking at them and they're thrown this way and that way, and they're grinning up at you. 
At that time, there was a tailor in the village, and he had an apprentice, the devil's own airy card, and the two would be sitting back to back up on the table every night, sewing away, and the kitchen full of neighbours, for tailors have the name of being jolly. One night, the conversation turned to things of the spirit, and they were talking about the banshee and the bardshee and the colshee and the pokey. There was a great threat of the supernatural at that time, but the tailor's apprentice was afraid of nothing. He said he was out all hours and never saw anything uglier than himself, and you think it would be hard for him. All right, so says the tailor, all right. Would you go up to the graveyard this hour of the night? I would, says the apprentice. But, says the tailor, would you bring me down a skull out of it? I would, says the apprentice, but I won't do it for nothing. I'll have to be paid for it. What'll you give me? The tailor wanted to appear spunky in front of his neighbour, so he said, All right, you have three of the five years of your apprenticeship done. I'll give you two years off now, he said, if you do what you say. I'll give you your indentures in the morning, and you can go away as a journeyman. A bargain, says the apprentice, and he hopped off the table, stuck the two legs into the shoes and off out the door with him. And when he was gone, the tailor got sorry. He said to himself that if the apprentice, and he was blackguard enough to do what he said he'd do, that if he went away from him, he'd be very short-handed. So the tailor hopped off the table, stuck his legs into his shoes, and made off out the door. And the tailor, being a local man, he knew all the near ways to the graveyard, and he was there before the apprentice, and he ducked down behind a tombstone. And the sort of a night it was, you had clouds racing across the face of the moon, so that you had light moving across the graveyard, then darkness and then light again, showing the faces of the statues and the drunken crosses. And the tailor thought that they were moving, and you wouldn't blame him for going a bit bockety at the knees, so that it was a great relief to him when the apprentice hopped in over the wall. The clouds cleared from the face of the moon as the apprentice walked over to where the heap of skulls was and he picked up a skull and if he did, the tailor altering his voice and he, he could do it. He'd get a middle for it. The tailor said, Lay down my head. The apprentice dropped the skull the same as if it was a hot coal. He looked around, but when he couldn't see the owner of the voice, he bent down and picked up another one and the tailor altering his voice again said, Lay down my head. The apprentice was just about to drop the skull when he changed his mind and looking in the direction of the voice he said, Ah, bad look to it, you couldn't have two heads. Off with him out over the wall and as he walked along between the trees he heard the twigs breaking in the ground behind him. Of course he didn't know it was the tailor that was after him. He ran like hell back to the house and throwing the skull up on the table he went in behind the press shouting, Bolt the door quick, the fellow that owns the head is after me. (laughs) 